Our teaching for this evening is, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. This is God's Word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're um, visiting with us, um, we've been... In the Psalms for the last several weeks, uh, particularly a section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And this week, we're actually going to take a break. I wanted to, to take a, uh, one week here since we are ordaining and installing new, new officers. I wanted to, to look at this passage. It's a passage about uh, the Christian ministry. But it's not only about that. It's really a passage about discouragement. The all-too-real experience of losing heart, uh, whether it be things in your own life, uh, things in other people's lives, the experience of despair, hopelessness, discouragement. And in fact, this, this whole chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is framed by this phrase. If you look in verse 1, Paul begins here, we do not lose heart. Then if you look over in verse 16, we do not lose heart. So th this chapter is about how is that possible? How can Paul say we do not lose heart? 
And I don't know what you come into this room with this evening. Perhaps you hear that and think, I have already, I've already lost. I, I'm, I'm discouraged. Um, I have lost hope. Uh, I know that this Christian thing is supposed to be life-giving, and yet that seems so far from my experience that I have lost heart. So the question for us tonight really is, what can sustain you and give you hope no matter what comes? How can Paul begin this chapter? After he has actually written, this is the fourth letter to the church in Corinth. It's, we only have two of the, of the four. And that church had its fair share of problems. It was a train wreck of a church. And yet, Paul is saying, we do not lose heart. How can he say that? And what he says here in this chapter, is essentially, he answers that question with three things. God's mercy, God's power, and God's purposes. So let's look at those three. God's mercy, God's power, and God's purposes. First of all, God's mercy. Look in verse 1. Therefore... Having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, Paul's referring to everything that's come before chapter 4 with, with the term therefore, especially in chapter 3, where he's talking about the new covenant. Essentially, what is new now that Jesus Christ has come, that he has died, that he has risen, that he has ascended, and he has poured out his spirit? Paul says... Everything about who I am now, everything that I'm doing, I am doing by the mercy of God. This is not my ministry. Uh, This isn't my great idea. This is all an expression and demonstration of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now what that means at the very beginning, all ministry, and in fact, every single morning you get out of bed, it stands on the work of God in Jesus Christ. The very fact that you and I have rain, that there's sun, that you have clothing, that you have food, these are all evidences of God's mercy. And for Paul, God's mercy is the sustaining, nourishing life of his ministry. Therefore, he says, he has this mercy by the mercy of God. However, um, as I said, Paul's ministry in Corinth was not an easy one. And if you're at all familiar even just a little bit with the New Testament, there's not a whole lot about his ministry that was easy. And um, I could tell you stories even in my own pastoral life, ministry is not easy. There are seasons, there's ups and downs, there's uh, real discouragement, there's real sadness, there's real joy and delight. And yet, when things do get hard, I think there are at least two pitfalls that we can fall into. And this isn't true just for pastors or elders or deacons. This is true for anybody, anyone who is a follower of Jesus when life begins to press in on us, there are at least two ways that we can begin to 
uh, run aground. The first one is in verses 2 to 4 here, where he's talking about how they, he has renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Uh, he's refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. The, the first pitfall is to begin to think that something wrong with God's word. That what God says and has revealed and has given us in the scriptures is either inadequate or incomplete or in some way antiquated, uh, misses the mark. This is why Paul here says we refuse to tamper with it. We refuse to manipulate people in order to get out of them what we want or to get them to do what we want them to do. See, the temptation is always, especially for religious people, to manipulate or to tamper with God's word. We might be embarrassed by what we read. It might grate against our sensibilities. It might be confusing. It might leave us having to wonder and ask, God, I don't know what to do with this. But another pitfall about God's word here is looking in verse 3. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, Paul is here speaking from a perspective that believes that there is a natural and a supernatural world. And when he says here, the God of this world, he means Satan. And the scriptures again and again, and Jesus himself, speak about Satan or the devil as a real being who is active in this world and in ways that are harmful and hurtful to people. And that's the perspective that we're coming from because that's the, the perspective the scriptures have. And what he, what, how does this play into how we might think about God's word, this first pitfall? Well, have you ever felt like, you know, what God says, it just doesn't have the power to do anything. It can't change me. It can't change other people. It's has maybe a lot of great things that might change your life if you followed it, but it can't really change you where you most need it. But notice here, the problem is not, according to Paul, it's not God's word or the gospel. What is the, the problem here is unbelief and suspicion. Unbelief in the sense of even the phrasing here, those who are the unbelievers, we use some, some people use as sort of a label for a group of people, but in the scriptures, unbeliever meant to disbelieve, to not accept, to reject that, whatever the truth is. But not only that, there's the suspicion part. What is Satan most known for in the Bible? He's most known for being the tempter, the one who gets you to say, did God really say that? 
Does he really mean that? Is he really good? Is he really gracious? That suspicion, however subtle, combined with the human heart's propensity to want to be our own Lord and Savior, is a significant hurdle. It's a significant obstacle. And it's all too often easy to begin to believe, you know, I just don't see much change. Maybe, maybe God's word really isn't the power of God unto salvation. Maybe the gospel might be good news for some, but it's not good news for the whole world. That's the first pitfall. Something may be wrong with God's word, but what about a second pitfall? Look in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So again, remember, Paul is telling us that he has this ministry by the mercy of God, but what happens when things begin to get hard? Maybe we begin to doubt the power of God's word, but we also then, when that happens, begin to make ministry more about us than about Jesus Paul here is saying, we proclaim not ourselves. What does that mean? It must be a temptation. It must be a problem. That in the midst of following Jesus and in the life of the church, that we can fall into a very, very serious problem. That our lives, our ministry together, our church life together could be more about us, our reputations, our preferences, our sensibilities even, than it is about Jesus. And here's the question, and I realize this is a bit of a jugular question. What does your life proclaim? Let me give you an example. I was thinking about this this week in light of my own interactions with my children. What does my life proclaim to them when I come home and I'm surly and I'm grumpy? What does my life proclaim to them when I make a mistake and I can laugh about it? And I can tell you, I can tell a dramatic difference between those two vignettes just by looking at my boys' faces. What does your life proclaim? Does your life proclaim that there is good news? That there is such a thing as joy? That there is such a thing as forgiveness for sinners who fail, who mess up, again and again. What does your life proclaim in the thoughts that you think, in the words that you say, in the actions that you do? Because notice what Paul says here. He says, we proclaim Christ as Lord. And where does he fit into this? He says, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Did you catch what he's saying there? Serving for Jesus' sake. Serving 
loving others, doing good, ceases to be good if it's not for Jesus' sake. If it becomes for our sake, however well-intended, however subtle, however sneaky, because no one else can tell why you're doing what you're doing. All serving that isn't for Jesus' sake is no longer true gospel serving. What, what does your life proclaim? See, what Paul is helping us to see here for him about God's mercy when it comes to losing heart is that God's mercy radically changes your identity and your attitude toward others because mercy is a gift. It's not something you deserve. It's not something that God said, you know what? That person is incredibly competent. They have all kinds of ability. I want them on my team. The Bible says the opposite, that we were all God's enemies. And he's been merciful. And it radically changes the way we think about ourselves and others when that begins to to drop and take root in your life. So how can God's mercy actually really sustain you? Look in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you caught it here in verse 6, but let light shine out of darkness. That's an echo of Genesis chapter 1. When God created all that there is. And he compares here creation to the, the light of the gospel breaking through into veiled hearts, darkened hearts. What's that mean? This is really good news because what it means is no matter how hard-hearted you are, how burned or jaded you may feel this evening, how tender and wounded you may be, the light of the gospel can break in and bring light to where there was once total chaos, total darkness, and it's a free gift. It's something God does that Jesus Christ unveils God, that he makes light where there was once darkness. So what does this mercy really mean for you? It means that God never blesses you without at the same time calling you to be a blessing to others. That's what Paul is telling us here under this first idea of God's mercy. It means that he never blesses you without calling you to be a blessing to others. But let's think about it for a moment. How how is that possible? How can you actually be a blessing to other people when your week is full, uh, your emotional bandwidth is spent, um, you've had hard conversations, you're not really sure what God is doing in your life, you don't have much more to give, How are you supposed to be a blessing, even to those people that you live with or see most often when perhaps you're worn out and circumstances are overwhelming? Well, that's the second point. We have God's mercy. The answer to the second point here is God's power. Look in verse 7. 
We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Think about this image for a moment. We have this treasure, by which Paul here means the ministry of the gospel or the light of the gospel, in jars of clay. Now, you have to kind of think for a moment. In the ancient world, in the first century, a jar uh, was made out of, of clay that was very brittle, prone to chipping, not a durable vessel. And the picture here is a picture that of what we are like. That according to the Bible, we are not strong. We're not resourceful. We are inherently fragile. We are easily breakable. We are brittle. And the truth of the matter is, you don't want to admit that. I don't want to admit that. Our culture does not want to admit that. In fact, I was in a situation the other day where I heard somebody say, yeah, I'm I'm never going to be able to um, do X, Y, or Z. And I could hear this other person almost just chiding this person, berating them for admitting their own weakness. No one wants to admit that. It's, it's hard to admit that. It means that you're vulnerable, that you need help. And yet, for Paul, this is actually how you begin to experience the power of God. When he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But what does that power look like? Look in verse 8 and 9. What does he say? He says, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. God's power doesn't look like no trouble in your life. God's power in your life looks like nothing overwhelming you. That suffering and sorrow and hardship and trouble will not have the last word. That God's power will sustain you. Now, I know from having conversations with some of you that you've gone through things that have pretty much brought you to the end of yourself. And it's one thing to be able to say, when you're not in an overwhelming situation, that God will sustain you. It's quite another thing to have lived through that and to actually have experienced and discover, I didn't think that he was sustaining me from how all that felt and what that was like, but he actually did. And I'm here to tell you about it. See, God's power enables you to not lose heart. To not utterly become hopeless. And how is that possible? Let's look here in verse 10 and 11. It's possible because the gospel had reframed how Paul looks at his life. Now, what do I mean by that? Look here in verse 10. Always caring in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus 
also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Did you catch this? You've got the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That for Paul, the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus frames his entire life. Paul described a Christian as someone who was in him, united to Jesus. What Paul is helping us to see here, and I'll admit, this is not the easiest thing to grasp, but it's all over the New Testament. That to really understand God's power in the gospel is to begin to look at your life through the the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That you begin to look at the suffering and and the, the the struggle, the heartache of your life as of akin to the suffering and the sorrow and the pain that Jesus endured. And that you look at God's grace and his help and his mercy in your life as akin to the resurrection. That both are true at the very same time for those who are in Christ. And that's why Paul can say we do not lose heart. He says, quoting, actually, let me, let me quote to you from Acts chapter 2 to give you an idea of what I mean here. Paul is very clear, and let me, let me get to that Acts 2 in just a second. Affliction is real. He says that we're afflicted in every way. He's not downplaying it at all. He's very honest and real about death, weakness, suffering, trial. But there's more than that. There's the life of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and he, he makes this astounding statement. He says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you catch that? Death could not keep Jesus in the grave. That means if you are in him, there is no amount of sin and brokenness that can keep you down. There is no amount of sin and brokenness that can overpower the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I realize that might not be how you feel. That not, might not be what you think. But what the scriptures say is you are to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You're to count yourself as in him, raised from the dead. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. That's a promise from Jesus. So if we're going to have any success against discouragement and despair, we need God's mercy and we need God's power. But we also need to know what God is up to. We need to grasp what his purposes are. What is he doing? How am I supposed to look at my life when I am discouraged and I am prone to despair? That could help me to say, I I won't lose heart. Why and how can you say that? Well, let's look at God's purposes in verses 13 to 18. 
verse 16, he says again, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you ever wonder what God is doing in your life today? If you can't answer that question, you need to come to this verse. This is a promise to you that in Jesus, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how much you are weighed down by sin and brokenness of either your own or someone else's, you are being renewed day by day. doesn't say once a week. doesn't say once a year. Every day. God's grace is constant. His renewing work breaks through everything you face every day. There is no day that you live that God is not able to renew you in the midst of it. That's what this is telling you. So the next time you wonder, I don't, what's God doing? I don't understand. I'm worn out. I'm losing heart. Come back to this. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What that, that means the gospel has the power. Grace has the power to reach you where nothing else can reach you. That the gospel and God's grace can reach your heart, who you most fundamentally are, and nothing can keep him from doing that. So we do not lose heart. Again, how can he say that? How can you say that? Let me finish by giving you two, two quick reasons. First, the hope of the resurrection. Look in verse 14. Paul here says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is a confession of faith. Paul is saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. Have you said that lately? Can you say that? Do you know that what the death and resurrection of Jesus means is that he will see you through whatever this world brings, even the end of your heartbeat. And he will bring you to himself. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. The hope of the resurrection. But second, the weightiness of glory. Look in verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, if you read that quickly, you might think, This light and momentary affliction, are you kidding me? This does not feel light and it doesn't feel momentary. This feels incredibly heavy and it feels like it's never going to go away. And Paul would say, I I know exactly what you're talking about. And the weight of glory, this eternal weight of glory, is beyond all comparison. 
you might feel weighed down right now. But let me tell you, the glory that awaits you is way weightier. I don't know if you know this, but the Hebrew term for glory is also weight. A one way of understanding glory in the Old Testament is it has gravity. It's weighty. It's substantial. It's significant. And what he is saying here is whatever you and I are facing right now, however overwhelming it may be, in light of the death and resurrection, in light of the hope of the gospel, it can be considered light and momentary. That's amazing. That's worth sitting in. This is help for you and for me, God's mercy, power, and purposes in the midst of those days when you were tempted to lose heart. How can you say with Paul, we do not lose heart? That's what he's trying to help us to see here. So what do we do with this? Where do we go? What can you take from this? Essentially, it means learning to live not by what you can see, but by what you can't see. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the upside down of the gospel. This is the upside down character of Christianity. We live in a world that is all about what you can see, what you can taste, what you can smell, what you can touch. And that's all good. It's just not all that there is. And it's actually not even the most important. What we are told here is that what can't be seen is what is eternal. And you have access to that good news through faith. Not because you've earned it or done anything. It's a free gift. That what can sustain you, even through the grave, is the Lord Jesus, raised from the dead, even now, seated at the right hand of his Father. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage. We pray that you would help us to see with the eyes of faith your mercy, your power, and your purposes in Jesus. That his death and resurrection, his life, would become so much a part of how we see our own lives that we, with Paul, would be able to say we do not lose heart. And that we would know that you are present, renewing us day by day in your ways, in your time, in your wisdom, and with your means. Father, help us to not lose heart. Help us with Jesus to entrust ourselves to you, knowing that in giving Jesus we can be sure that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.